The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Great to have you with us tonight as we, what is it, a Tuesday night, right? You know, I'm having more and more trouble keeping track of the days. Uh, as Because this COVID thing has everybody out of whack, right? The, the schedules are all weird. My schedule seems, well, it hasn't changed a whole lot, but I... You know, the things that I do that relate to other people has have changed. And um, I don't my, my band doesn't play anymore. So I don't have weekend gigs. They kind of were my anchor. And I, you know, kind of plotted the days after that. But everything is weird. So therefore, um, it, it's hard to keep track of the days. But I am. Oh, actually, let me look at my watch. OK, so my watch doesn't even tell me. It is Tuesday, yeah, so we're right there. <laughs> it's silly that I even have to look. Anyway, we've got a great show tonight. We'll have uh, our good friend Scotty Roberts on the program. We're going to be talking about recent reports that archaeologists have discovered what they believe is the um, childhood home of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And, uh, you know, what, is, what does that mean, and, and how do they know, and and uh, is it important for those who are Christians to have that information, or does it start to unravel some of the mystery of the whole thing? I mean, these are all very, very valid questions, and we'll go through them with, with Scotty. We're also going to talk about um, the origins of Christmas, the Christmas holiday, because we all know that while we celebrate the birth of Jesus on Christmas, that really wasn't his birthday. December 25th. At least I don't think so. And Scotty will clear that up for us as well. But we'll have a great conversation. There's some other things in the news that we'll probably get to. It's going to be a very, very casual conversation, as is uh, our conversation every time we have Scotty on because he's a good friend. And we just like to chat. Well, yeah, I'm just reading the chat room. Another very, very important milestone we're passing here is today, January 8th, or excuse me, December 8th, is the 40th anniversary of the shooting of John Lennon. And it was just a, we just passed the mark. I think it was around 9.30 p.m., something in that neighborhood, Eastern. And that John Lennon was shot dead in front of his apartment uh, on uh, on 72nd Street in Manhattan. And 40 years now, uh, that 40 years ago, that happened, and he was 40 when he died. So therefore, you know, he has been gone as long as he was alive. And that's that's quite a corner to turn for people uh, who understand his importance to popular music, to rock music, to the Beatles, to popular culture, all those things, because his mark will be felt forever. I mentioned yesterday that Bob Dylan sold his catalog of music to Universal for something like $300 million. And the Beatles were great fans of Bob Dylan, but the feeling was quite mutual. Bob Dylan really respected what the Beatles did, too. The Beatles saw Bob Dylan as a, as somebody who opened the door for 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 musicians, for people that played and sang, to actually play and sing their own music instead of playing and singing music from professional songwriters. And not only playing and singing their own music, but things that singing about things that weren't necessarily, you know, um, considered topics for popular songs. I mean, those, I mean, the first few Beatles songs, I Want to Hold Your Hand, She Loves You, you know, that was the bubblegum stuff, but that's the stuff that it was considered to be appropriate for popular music. And then they started to write about uh, things that were much more personal to them. And some of those things were political causes, whatever it happened to be. And they realized that, you know what, good music can take that form as well. In fact, it's probably even better. So anyway, I've got gotten a little long winded here in the opening segment. We do want to get to Scotty. So 
Again, it's going to be a casual conversation with Scotty, but he's a wealth of knowledge, always has a great conversation ahead for us, and I'm looking forward to having him on the program because it's been a few months since he's been here. So we'll take a break. We'll come back with Scotty Roberts. It's Beyond Reality. And uh, don't go away. We'll be right back. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So as I promised tonight, we've got good friend and uh, walking scholar um, Scotty Roberts with us tonight. Looking forward to this because we haven't had him on in a while. And I think the last time you were on, Scotty, it was one of those, you know, five minutes before airtime. Hey, Scotty, can you do me a favor and jump on and and fill in? Isn't that what (laughs) happened? That's usually what happens, right? That's usually what happens, and it's late night, so I'm not doing anything else. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's my luck. But um, tonight we actually had had a couple things we wanted to chat about specifically, uh, some things in the news. But before we get to those things, what have you been up to? What's going on in the world of Scotty Roberts? Oh boy, you know, uh, as most of us are, we've had uh, you know COVID uh, restrictions and things. We came out of lockdown and all of that, and. And, uh, you know, my my business suffered a little bit, but not bad, just not a lot of it. And uh, so I've been doing other things. I've been working on other projects. Uh, I've been working on my own radio stuff and trying to beef that up and working to finish uh, before the end of this month, I hope, uh, my novel, the fictional novel I have that's set in 1920s Egypt and um, uh, supernatural mixed with historical and stuff, uh, occult detective stuff. And uh, so that I'm finishing up for my agent. And uh, other than that, I've got about 10 other things on the list, and I'm just keeping busy. So I have to ask you, because, you know, I know that you've written a lot of, I guess we we would call it nonfiction. Um, Yeah. And and now you're writing a novel. What's the difference in process for you or maybe just authors in general when they make that switch? Uh, For me, it's, uh, it's writing more illustratively um when i'm writing a a a, a more uh, scholarly book nephilim the reptilians the exodus the whatever um you want to write nice and you want it to be picturesque and for people to enjoy it while they read it but when you're writing fiction you're building the world right. around everybody and you're building it verbally they used to say why did shakespeare use the language he used in those plays it was because they didn't have a lot, and they were relying on people's imaginations to fill in all the blanks, and so he used a lot of words. And so for me, it's, you know, rather than saying, and the manor house stood on the hill overlooking the river. You know, you want to say, you want to say, from a bird's eye view, you know, uh, this uh, the, the Welsh, you know, castle built on the Roman ruins stood out as a sentinel above the river Y, you know, and me, you know, whatever. You, you got to doctor it up a little bit, so it's and you and there's the narrative. You want those characters to interact and people to care about who the who they are. And so that's the big difference is you're building a story, um, and you have to. In my head, I imagine it as a screenplay, as I'm watching, as if I'm watching something, and I write from that perspective. And uh, so I want people to see the picture that I see in my head. 
What about the actual story itself? How do you develop uh, something, A, that, you know, you, 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 you start and take it to a conclusion? Uh, that's hard enough as, as it is. But, B, make it interesting and make it something that people want to follow and, you know, turn the page. Right. You know, go from page 1 to 2 to 3 to 400, whatever it is. Um, how does that story develop uh, in you? For, for the world that you and I live in, it's kind of easy. You draw on all this stuff that we encounter, everything from ghost stories to ghost events, uh, meaning uh, uh, not, I'm not talking like uh, an event that you buy a ticket for. I mean, an right. event, things that happen, yeah. uh, to the weird stuff that's out there and uh, all the things we think about and we're curious about. And so I built a story off of that. And then you go from what you know. And so I wanted to set a story that I hadn't seen in a long time. I set my story in 1920s Egypt, and it's with a couple of people uh, that are young people in their early 20s, and one of them is a British Romani, you know, the gypsies, and uh, his father settled down and won a fortune, and they live in this old estate, and uh, he has access to world travel and adventuring and all of this at a very early age in his 20s. And then uh, a girl he grew up with since he was a child was an Irish girl who I've got her fictionally as the first woman who graduated from Oxford with a, an archaeological Ph.D. But she's fighting the old system, the old ways of where it was a man's world. And uh, so um, the, that's the basis for those characters. And I take them through all the things that you kind of have, I've absorbed since I was a little kid, the adventurous, the supernatural, the paranormal, the historical, the archaeological, and you put that all together and roll it together and try to find an adventure. And then you try to find vehicles to carry the story through. So there's one character that they come in contact with, a kid who's a stowaway with a foreign uh, uh, dignitary's mission, and he's from China. And uh, they they end up befriending this kid, and that pro, that that moves the story along, who he ends up being, and things like that. And so, uh, um, yeah, you try to build a story as if I, I look at myself, and I've got a scene in the book where I'm walking across the desert uh, south of Luxor, and I'm walking with a buddy of mine, but I'm walking through the desert in the midday sun. And we, we are walking over to the old temple of Menadat Habu. And we go in there, and we uh, and I, I talk about in this book where this is, and then they make it down to the Valley of the Monkeys. And there's a scene, it's not a big giveaway, but there's one scene in the book where something raises up an army of mummified zombie Ooh. baboons. Ooh. <laughs> and uh, they have to fight this off in the process. Now, that's not... That's just one scene in the book uh, out of uh, out of a hundred scenes in the book, but that happens. And so, you when you're walking through the desert and you see that stuff, you go, "Where am I again? What direction's the river?" And uh, yeah. <laughs> my friend John and I, we ran out of water one day because the water was on the donkeys, and we had stopped to look at some ruins. And we look up a half an hour later, and everybody's gone. And it's like <laughs> uh, we spun around in a circle on the camera and said, "Do you see anything? The desert?" And uh, we said, "We know the Nile's that way." <laughs> And so we just started walking and filming it. And, you know, you take in some of those little experiences or some of the supernatural things that I've encountered there. And it's not as grandiose as I make it in the book, of course, but, you know, you embellish it in the book and you give those experiences to those characters and how do they interact. And, 
you know, she's kidnapped at the beginning. He's got a rescuer. They run into the one of the main characters is the head of the the um, the, the black market in Egypt in 1920, and uh, very um, formidable, intimidating man. And so uh, I've written all these characters in, and there's there's all different kinds of his father, the main character's father, developed. I've got him. How do you take a Romani, somebody whose grandparents were roaming around in the gypsy wagons across Great Britain uh, a generation earlier? How do you develop that this kid is an aristocrat? Uh, and so I've got his father got into aeroplanes early on in the 1900s, the <laughs> development, and uh, by working with somebody, and he ends up developing airplanes and makes a killing in World War II and becomes highly successful, incredibly wealthy, and they buy this old estate, and this is what this kid has. And so these are the, the vehicles that I use to build a story, and how do I branch that story out? Then I, I'm kind of a stream of consciousness. I've got an idea where I'm going, but I sit down and I just write the story the way it feels. Okay, now I feel, um, like, I feel so. like I know you, and you and I have been friends long enough that I can say this, and you won't be offended by it. Sure. You are a perfectionist. And for you to finish, I mean, even even when you and I were working together and, uh, you know, I needed three pages of something, you know, you're such yeah. a perfectionist that, you know, oh, I got to do one more rewrite. I got to do one more rewrite. How do you finish yeah. a novel? I mean, that must you must really have to focus and, and probably, um, you know, after seven rewrites, you're probably at the point where, you know, I probably should do one more, but I got to get it out. That, now, that's the way I write. And I generally tend to write like paragraphs at a time. I know where the next paragraph is going, but I, I will do that. I will sit and I will struggle over a paragraph. And then the next 10 paragraphs flow right out of me, yeah. and all i got to do is go back and refine a little bit and touch it up. But saying things just the right way. And if I were to put a book out that is pure, raw, what I have spewed out on a page, people would get lost in it. So I have to take that and write it in a way that's going to maintain somebody's interest. I don't spend too much time building backstory for somebody who's not really part of the story or the action, but you got to mention it to set up, uh, you know, to set it up, to set the stage. No. And uh, I-, I will tell you, when I wrote, the only other novel I've written was The Rollicking Adventures of Tam O'Hare. Right. And it was about the 15th century Irish lord, and it was all anthropomorphized. It was meant to be a kid's book and ended up being an adult's book. But uh, there was one chapter I wrote in that from start to finish, and it's toward the end of the book. And I wrote the whole chapter sitting there. It was just flowing out of me. And I hit period at the end, and I sat back, and I had tears just streaming down my face and dripping off my, my chin whiskers. And I, and I thought, what the hell did I just write? What's in that? <laughs> and I had to go back, and I did very little refining on that. Uh, so sometimes it flows. Sometimes you got to work at it. Now, if, by my count, I think you probably have written enough stuff that you probably have a wing at the New York Public Library or something like that. <laughs> now, no, seriously, how many how many books have you written? You've written a bunch. Not, not that many. I, I know people who've written thirty and forty books. You know, little paperback books, and mm-hmm. I've written only uh, the one novel, uh, and I, I wrote a graphic novel years ago. Um, that I also illustrated. And then I've written the uh, uh, Nephilim, the Reptilians, the, the book on Moses, and then uh, contributed to several uh, anthology books for the same publisher, New Page Books. 
Do you like writing? About, do you enjoy the process of writing? Because to me, it's I do. It's 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 arduous to me. It's daunting at times. Yeah, but but I enjoy it. I enjoy sitting down and creating a world. Uh, or if it's a world that you're familiar with, there might be elements you're not familiar with. The reader, and so I want to make that familiar to people. Um, I, I wrote a little, I did one little fictional scene, one or two of them in the book about the Exodus and Moses, which was a scholarly book. But I took a paragraph and I wrote about how the Bible talks about how Moses killed the Egyptian taskmaster. And, uh, and I wrote about that, about slipping the knife between the ribs and hearing the gurgle and watching the man slump to the ground to his feet and, uh, uh, you know, hoping his cause consumed by his ba and all of the, and I got into Egyptian religion with it a little bit. And so you get some, some places where you can do that with some scholarly work. And I just did that as like introduction to a couple of chapters. Um, but, uh, um, sometimes it's just, it's creating a picture for people to enjoy, enjoy reading the, it, but it's daunting sometimes putting that together. I've said many times, like when I finished Tam O'Hare, which was back in, God, I wrote that novel first in like 1998. And uh, I said to people, I would give this book away on the corner if my publisher would allow me, not because I think everybody has to have it, but I want to go, look at this book. I, I wrote this thing. <laughs> this is the thing I did, and, and I, I want you to read it. It's a good story, and it's daunting. It's like most authors. You remember Aaron Sagers? Yeah, well, of course. Uh, yeah. Worked at the magazine as well for a time. And um, I remember he and I talking about this and agreeing on this point. I said, writing a book is daunting, and it kind of sucks sometimes, but it's after you're done, you can say, I wrote that thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's the fun part. So, yeah, it it is the fun part. We're going to be talking about some um, articles that have come out recently that I think are pretty interesting. But to set up uh, discussing these, I want to talk a little bit about your experiences in traveling, particularly in Egypt. What does it feel like to walk in the presence of and, you know, it's one thing to say historical places, but these are beyond historic places. These are places that not only have a historic resonance, but they have a mystical and a spiritual resonance resonance as well. Yes. Um, you're talking, there's, there's one place, uh, my phone blanked out for about three seconds there, and I missed something you said, but I think you're talking about being in the places where some of these things happen. Absolutely. Or historical events. There's one thing I want to mention. We were in, when we were in Cairo, we went down to old Cairo, it's like uh, if you go to Jerusalem, you have the quarters of the city, the old city, the new city, and so on. And we're in old Cairo, and we went to a church there. And this church was built on what they said was the site where Mary and Joseph had their house when they fled to Egypt when Jesus was a baby. And the interesting thing about this site, you're on this little cobbled street, no cars, um, you walk down and you go down steps to get into the church, and it looks like you know you're like you're in an old medieval building is what it looks like. But um, the church was established 1,700 years ago. Wow! And so you look at that and you say, wait a minute. Now, whether this this place really existed, whether this was the house of Joseph or Mary or not, traditionally it has been the site. Of this of Joseph and Mary's house since 
before they built the church there. And if this was the site, you're talking stories that go back to within a hundred years of the time of Jesus, that they said this is the place where their house was, and they built the church there. And uh, so it's very interesting. You can go in there, you can go sit down. They had a service, so I couldn't take any pictures or anything while I was there. Uh, I think I got one stealthy picture in at the of the whole inside. But uh, being in sites where things happen, for instance, when we went to Menadot Habu, we walked across the desert, we went into that, into the old Holy of Holies there. And there's an old threshold that's down on the floor where you walk over into the Holy of Holies, just a stone, but it's all, um, what's the word? It's, it's uh, uh, worn out. There's a big, it's big and curved in the middle for all the people that have passed through that doorway over 3,000 plus years. And you walk over that, and I remember saying to John Ward, because we were there researching for our book on the Exodus, and I stepped on that threshold, and I said, you know what I can say without any doubt whatsoever? Whoever Moses was as a prince of Egypt, he stepped on this threshold. That's right. And I'm stepping on it now. And, uh, and you walk through there. And, uh, um, and it's an amazing feeling to be in these places where you know there is so much history and so much has happened here. Get yourself even out of biblical history and you start going into Egyptian history. And you say, this is where this guy did this. And uh, that's what I enjoy. Even when I, go to, when I go to Great Britain, I get the same feelings when you go into some places. I went to Glencoe, Scotland, that, that big uh, mountain uh, there. You've seen it in a million movies. It's in the background of movies, this big uh, mountain that slopes down, green mountain in the background. And uh, standing in Glencoe, where in the early 1600s, there was a massacre of the village there by... Uh, uh, loyalists to the king uh, taking down the Jacobites. And uh, you stand there in this valley, there's a little brook that runs through it, and you're in the middle of nowhere. And first of all, it's like the presence, the place. And it was palpable with the feeling of the massacre that took place there. And uh, But there's no remnant of it anywhere. And uh, it's, you're out in the wilderness. And so it's things like that. You can go to buildings or you can go to uh, geographic locations and you can pick up this absolutely amazing feeling off of place. And I'm not talking psychic feelings. I'm not talking about things. I'm talking about just, you can be just a normal person and you go and you stand in the middle of that and you close your eyes and you soak it in. You stand in the desert. I took my shoes off and I stood barefoot in the desert sands in Egypt uh, where something had happened, and you just feel it. It's there. It's palpable. So, when we talk, it's amazing. Yeah, no, yeah. it is unbelievable. And I have not been to Egypt or anywhere in the Holy Land or any of those types of places, but I've spent a tremendous amount of time in Europe and, and you know, going to many historical places in Europe, which are kind of, you know, actually new compared to some of the places in Egypt, uh, more relatively contemporary compared to those places. But I understand that feeling and I understand how there's a power associated with them. And I don't know if the power comes from the fact that in your mind, you know what took place here. Therefore, you're, you know, you, you just have a sense of awe for, for being in that place or what it is, but I, but I completely understand it. But my question is, 
there are a lot of places throughout Europe. There are there are uh, uh, cathedrals and churches and yeah. chapels built on sites that are purported to be one thing or another. This is the site that Joan of Arc did something, or this is right. the you know. And the same thing with the Holy Land. You know, you just mentioned uh, the 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 church in Cairo, an old Cairo that was built supposedly on the site of uh, Joseph and Mary and Jesus's home when they lived there when Jesus was a baby. What do you take from that? Do you are you of the opinion that generally those are how do I put this delicately? Those are you know like local uh, folklore that is it, that is it term... urban folklore? Is it real? Yeah, you think? was that uh, really? You know that's that's the big difficulty you'll have. I I always hail back to something. It's a common thing now, a common saying or understanding nowadays. But back in my seminary days, we're talking, damn, Jim, it was almost 40 years ago yeah. that I was in seminary, uh, the early 1980s. And um, uh, I remember my professor saying to me, he says, Scotty, you've got to remember one thing. He says that all mythology has at its headwaters a kernel of truth. And we were talking about things like this, about sites, ancient sites, because he was also an archaeologist. He had excavated on the tomb of Ai, A-I, the pharaoh Ai, in Egypt, in the Valley of the Kings, back when he was younger. And um, uh, he said, all this mythology, this biblical mythology, religious mythology, label it as that, um, all of this has at its headwaters some kind of kernel of truth of something that took place there. Now, we just talked on my show all last week about the virgin birth. What was the virgin birth? How do you define it? How do you know if it was a virgin birth? And so on. And looking into historical writings about what it meant, what that meant in writings of great personages in the same day and age where they ascribed virgin births or godly induced births alongside of human DNA births, a guy that had a real father. And so we were talking about that last week. And when you look at all this mythology that's stacked up like that, you say, something at the core of this is true. Uh, is what is true about Jesus? The fact that Jesus was a real guy. Jesus was a real itinerant rabbi. Uh, did he, there are historical references to him existing. The big question that, that looms out there is, do I believe the faith element of this guy's story? alongside of the historical elements of his story. Um, did Jesus, that Jesus existed, is really not really all that questionable. That he existed in the form that we have been taught in church for 2,000 years, what has evolved, that's the big question. And so you would ask, well, who was the guy? It's like a good, for instance, we just talked about this. Here's a his, there's historical markers in the story about Jesus. And there's only two places in the Bible that talk about the Christmas story, if you will, the nativity. Mm -hmm. It's in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. They're the only two guys that talk about it. And it's never mentioned really anywhere else. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament books, he he talks about the pre-existent Christ, but he doesn't talk about this uh, uh, the, the birth, the virgin birth. So you got it in Matthew and Luke. And in Luke, it talks about how Jesus was born. Do you remember the story 
the wise men saw the star in the east and they came. And we always see in the nativity scenes all the wise men with their camels and their gold, frankincense (laughs) and myrrh, bowing before the manger and all of that. Well, the thing is, the way the story is written and in the linguistics, they saw the star in the east the day he was born, the night he was born. Um, That would have been in Babylonia, where they were from. They didn't make it over to the manger in Bethlehem the same night. Right. It could have been a whole two years had gone by. Well, when they come to to find him, they stop in to see the king, who's the puppet king under the Roman rule is Herod the Great. That's right. Um, who built the last big temple there, the remnants of still of which still stand, the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem is the remnants of Herod's temple compound where the Dome of the Rock sits. Well, here they are. They come, and Herod's like, Herod went crazy nuts. I mean, Herod murdered his wife, he murdered his son, he murdered his own family members if he thought they were going to be taking over his throne from him. And so he's very jealous that way, and he said, well, why don't you go find this king and then come back and tell me where you found him? And what he's not saying is, you know, according to the biblical tale, because I want to murder him. That's right. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, the angel then tells the wise and don't go back the same way, go home another route. And so they never report back to Herod. Well, the interesting thing about this guy, Herod, he's a vital part of Luke's story of Jesus and the birth of Jesus. He dies about 6 B.C. is when he dies. Uh, And they think of a stroke. He just stroked out, gone. Herod you're talking uh, about. Herod. Okay. And so Jesus would have had to have been born between one to two years before the death of Herod. So they place the birth of Jesus around 6 to 7 BCE. Now, what's interesting is the Luke story says that Joseph and Mary, why did they go to Bethlehem? Because they're from Nazareth. Why did they go to Bethlehem? Well, because uh, Caesar had put out a decree that all the world should be taxed and a census should take place. And they, and they had to return to their hometown of Bethlehem. So they're on their way to Bethlehem. What happens? They're not homeless. They're not poor, as some politicians would like to paint them. He was a carp—he was a carpenter and a stonemason. He was a contractor. The guy probably was like one of your neighbors down the block who has the big, the big ass uh, fifty thousand dollar pickup truck, and you know runs his 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 business. Joseph probably had money. Uh, they weren't—they didn't get in a stable because they didn't have money for a room or were homeless. They got it because they got there and it was too crowded and there was no place to stay. They didn't have kayak to go to online to set their bookings. And so uh, um, here you got Joseph and Mary going in for the census. Now, historically, according to the Bible story, this would have had to have been before the death of Herod, sometime between 6 and 7 to 8 at the most BCE. Mm-hmm. But the census, the only historical census on historical record that took place in Judea around that time was under Quirinius, who was the governor of Judea in six, the 6th century, I'm sorry, 6 AD. And so it was almost 10 to 12 years after what would have to have been the birth of Christ for him to be born while Herod was still alive. But the census didn't take place for another decade, at least historically. So what is it they're talking about? What are these gospel writers doing when they are this one gospel writer when he mentions that, to set a historical stage for when Jesus was born, the history doesn't play doesn't match. Because if that was the census, Herod's already been dead for a decade. 
and uh, wouldn't have been part of the birth story. So how much of that story was real? How much of that story was, and I use this term politely, how much of the story was manufactured, was put together for the faithful to have a, a literary context, so to speak, to place the story of this real guy in. And so I think Jesus was probably, uh, almost without a doubt, was a real person. And maybe did a lot of the deeds that you see. But at the same time, I think a lot of the story was manufactured. So did he do this? Did he do that? Did he go there? Uh, another great historical reference. You remember when uh, he, he's out in the boat with the disciples in a big storm, and he calms the storm. Mm-hmm. And they put him to land at, the, at uh, Gadara which uh, they don't know exactly where it was. There's a couple of candidates along the coast, and they're supposed to be on the Sea of Galilee, which is that big inland lake sea. And they put him there, and they meet, uh, they bump into the, the demoniac of Gadara, who Jesus casts the demons out of him, and they go into the pigs, and the pigs run off the cliff and drown in the sea. Well, in trying to locate this historically, archaeologically, you got to look for a place where there were graves, ancient graves, mm-hmm. and a place where there was a hill where pigs could run off a cliff and drown in the sea. And there's a couple of candidates for this, but they don't know for sure because none of it really matches up until you start looking at it linguistically and you look at the fact that way over in Spain, we're talking near Gibraltar, the Straits of Gibraltar up in Spain, There's a little village that claims to have been a village that Jesus visited. And there are still followers of this ancient sect of Christ followers from 2,000 years ago that are still in that community. It's a different sect of Christianity altogether. And uh, the, the way the story goes is that when they were out on the sea and they were being driven and there were the rocks and the cliffs and there were the graves and all of this, the place that matches it the most is this place off the Straits of Gibraltar as you're coming down from the northeast off the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, there's a lot of other facts around it, but the idea is the passage never says where he was traveling. It just says the sea, and everybody assumed it was the Sea of Galilee, and it was something on when it ends up, it is most probably, and the first person I saw who put this theory forward that I, I, I really dug into it, was uh, um, Shimka Yakubovici, uh, who did the show The Naked Archaeologist back about 20 years ago, and he's, he's a biblical, a Jewish biblical historian, an archaeologist. And so you look at that stuff and you say, there's a story here that we see in the Bible about this guy. Did he cast out demons? Was there the pigs and the whole scene and legion and all of that? That most likely took place in the Mediterranean that they took a boat over there because there is historical evidence that Christianity started there because Jesus visited there during his lifetime. So interesting stories like that when you start putting all this stuff together. So uh, this might be a very naive question, um, but you'll forgive me if it is. 
Do some of these discrepancies come from the fact that all of these books had to have been translated and 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 you know manipulated in a way? You know, we all know that the King James version of the Bible is the one that that seems to have held or seems to be the right. basis for what we're reading today. Um, you know, how much of it was altered after the fact, either through translations or manipulations down the road? That's a big question because you have to say. You hear preachers all the time will will say things like, if you go back to your Bibles and you look at the text, the text will tell you that. And you go, now, wait a minute, but which text are you going from? Right. First of all, I will say this emphatically, not to offend anybody, the King James Version of the Bible was written and it's full of political motivation. There's a lot of editing that took place of text to create the King James Bible. And King James was, it was James I of Scotland and England. It was Mary, Queen of Scots' son, uh, who became King of England and Ireland and Scotland. And uh, he's the guy that authorized this book. And there's a lot of things in there that you can pull out. I could pull out examples all over the place. But what you have to go back to is not the King James, not a medieval translation. You have to go back to the oldest translations we have, texts that exist the Codex A and the Codex B texts. Uh, you go look at the, uh, well, the Septuagint is Old Testament, but you look back at the New Testament writings, you can get to within, for a lot of the New Testament books, You can we have found manuscripts that date to within 200 years of the time of Jesus. Uh, one or two, maybe even earlier than that. And we don't know, and even those are copies of the original. You don't have something you go, I got Luke's handwriting. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. We don't have that text. But we can go back, if you go back 2,000 years and you can get within 150 to 200 years of the, of the date of Jesus, you know you've got something that is either pretty reliable or it was a fake from the beginning. And this is where I did a big series on my show like a year ago where we talked about Gnostic Christianity, the mystery religions, and how they tie into Christianity. And how that Jesus being the Son of God, that was, I'm sorry, and everybody hang on to your butts. That's not what the original Christianity taught. Um, the, the fact that Jesus was divine, was the Son of God, didn't really come into play until the mid-200s. And before that, it was a very different form of Christianity. And what you had was the, the literalist, orthodox, Church, which became the Catholic Church, uh, was at war with the Gnostics and the mystics over the life of Jesus, over the teachings of Jesus. And of course, they won. Uh, the, the literal Orthodox Catholic Church would put to death the Gnostics, put to death these mystics. And these mystic religions had God-men in them that predated Jesus in in Canaan, in Judea, in the same region that predated Jesus, uh, there were at least a dozen of them that predated him in that first couple of centuries before his birth. And they all had very similar stories. Uh, you could say, you could look at it and say, uh, you could do a bullet point list. Who am I talking about when I say, born on December 25th, a star guided shepherds and, and wise men to his his birth in a stable, and he had the animals and the shepherds there, and his mom was divinely impregnated, 
And uh, he grew up, he taught, he became a teacher, he walked on water, he calmed the storms, cast out demons, raised the dead. At the very end of his very short ministry, he was executed, many times crucified. Who am I talking? And then rose again, descended into hell, and rose again the third day. Who am I talking about? Well, most people would say, well, that's Jesus. Right. They say, well, that's one of 12 that had all those same attributes. And so you say, well, what made Jesus special? It's special because the mystic religions, the Gnosticism, the Gnostics, they ascribed to this man the God-man status that they had given to 12 other and other uh, deity-type men before the time of Jesus. And for people to listen to that, if they're immured in their faith, they're going to have they're going to have their minds blown, and they're not going to want to believe that because this is not what I was taught growing up. Uh, but this is where I think history is. This the same history professor I told you about, who told me about uh, at the headwaters of all mythology is a kernel of truth. When I was consulting with him about my book on the Nephilim. Uh, he said, remember, Scotty, he said at one point, remember, you've got to filter all your history and your archaeology through the Bible text. And I stopped and I said, but, but Doc, I said, if I do that, I'm not stepping outside the box to look back in and try to determine what the story actually says. Then I am, then it becomes a matter of a faith story as opposed to an historical story, and I'm changing, history is changeable depending on my faith. And uh, that's where he says, well, you know, yeah, kind of. If you're, if, if you're orthodox, he actually used the word, the orthodoxy of what you believe. And so that's what I think a lot of churches have done. And the more I've dug in on many, many, many topics has been that the Bible story presents a spiritual story of faith a salvific nature, bring people to God, whereas the history will tell you a story of a historical person on whom these special characteristics were placed in order to build the faith. And there was almost nothing wrong with that in the day and age. It's what they did. When they rewrote the, the, the Hebrew scriptures, The old think of the Old Testament, mm-hmm. um, Israel was carried captive in the 500s BCE, by Babylon. Babylon came and sacked Jerusalem, burned the temple to the ground, and they hauled off all the inhabitants to Babylonia. And they held them there for uh, about 100 years. And uh, then there was a time where the king came to the throne, and he goes, this is where you had, by the way, those kings, Nebuchadnezzar, Belteshazzar, all these kings in the Bible stories were actual kings in that period. And then you have uh, the new king comes to the throne, he sends them all home. You can go home. <laughs> and you got all the Jews pack up and go back to Israel, and they rebuild the temple. Well, what they did, this is in that same period in the 400s where they sent the 72 rabbis to the library, the great vaunted historical library of Alexandria in Egypt. And they asked permission of the pharaoh. Uh, the pharaoh was Ptolemy II. And they asked the permission of Ptolemy. Uh, 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 who was uh, one of a descendant of one of uh, Alexander the Great's uh, dudes, and uh, they asked permission to go to the Library of Alexandria and rewrite for the purpose of digging out all the old scrolls, reconstructing 
the scriptures of the Old Testament, what we now call the Old Testament, for the for two purposes. One, to reestablish the history of Israel, and two, to bolster the faithful of Israel. And so they wrote, rewrote the Old Testament. They wrote it in Koine Greek, or Greek of the day, which is the, the, the language Hellenized world after Alexander. And in Greek, it's called the Septuaginta, or the Septuagint. And this book is basically what you have when you read through the English translation of that is your Old Testament. And uh, so that's the book they created. But when they did that, the big question is, how much did they remember? How much did they forget? How much was right. actually, oh, would, would you, did you ever think about this? You're, you write and you study, Jim, and you do this stuff. Uh, uh, imagine if you could access the Library of Alexandria. In its day, it was the internet of its day, although it was a lot slower. It was more like dial-up. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, imagine that. It's like watching Lord of the Rings, where Gandalf goes to the old tower and goes to the old library, and he's looking through stacks and stacks of these old scrolls and books. That must have been what it must have been like at the Library of Alexandria. And uh, this is what they did. They took many years to reconstruct the Old Testament. And so what was lost in the translation? Right. What do we not know? Is this why when you read the story of Moses, you don't see a single name for a single pharaoh? Or was it because Moses wrote it that way and he didn't want to give life to them? Uh, that was part of the Egyptian resurrection and the eternal life was in the name. And by not naming them, he was denying them from an Egyptian perspective, eternal life. You don't know which one it is. So, uh, uh, there you go. I was answering a question somewhere in there, but there it is. Oh, you answered many. You answered many that I didn't even ask, which is what's so wonderful about having you on the show. <laughs> uh, because our time uh, will ultimately be short here, as it always is when we start talking, I want to talk about this article that was published on December 1st, and I'm sure it's been published many places. I happen to read the one that appeared in Popular Mechanics, actually Popular Mechanics Online, and the title of the article is Archaeologists Believe They've Unearthed Jesus's childhood home. The yeah. evidence lies beneath a convent in Nazareth. Now, I know you took a look at this as well. Um, yeah. These stories always seem to appear, you know, right after Thanksgiving, early December, as we start, you know, all of us start thinking about Christmas and that kind of thing. Um, I don't think that's a coincidence, but I think it's a beautiful way to help, um, you know, accent the season. However, yeah. In, in in your estimation, as you took a look at this story, what do you think? Is this something that we should be excited about? I think you could be. I, I don't think there's any reason to think that it could that it's not his home, other than there's maybe no markings. There's nothing. There's no address bar on the outside. No 1477, you know, Mediterranean <laughs> Avenue, Nazareth. Um, you know, there's nothing like that. Say, you know, Joseph's home. Um, but there could be telltale signs of a home that maybe had a shop in it that a stonemason lived there, that a carpenter lived there. Now, keep in mind, Nazareth was a podunk, backwater, little tiny town on a hillside, literally on a hillside. And But it was a hillside that overlooked what was called, it looked toward the east, toward the, Medi I'm the, sorry, the west, toward the Mediterranean, and down below in the valley was what was known as the King's Highway. And there's a highway there now, but this was the King's Highway. This was the main artery of trade from Mesopotamia 
down into Israel and down into Egypt. They all passed right there, right below the town of Nazareth on the hillside. And so Nazareth probably got a lot of visitors. Uh, Nazareth, this is where some of the naysayers go, you know, well, Mary, virgin birth, you know, <laughs> a lot of people in and out of Nazareth. It was like a sailor's um, town, right? <laughs> right, just about. It was a trade town. Yeah. And so, but it was a tiny town. It was never, it was never like a Jerusalem. It was not big. And uh, you go there today and the ruins, you know, just spread over a couple of acres on the hillside. And, uh, but Nazareth's still an active town as well. But you start digging there and you can find these things. Now, if Joseph was a carpenter, and by the way, they found that the word that was always translated in the Greek for carpenter is also the synonymous with the word for stonemason. Uh-huh. So here, jo- Joseph was a contractor. He worked in stone, probably brick, and, and, and uh, wood. And uh, if Jesus grew up, and you remember there's passages where the townspeople in Nazareth, when Jesus visited Nazareth, and they were all kind of pissed off at him, they were going to stone him or do something to him, because, wait, isn't this Joseph's kid? Isn't this the guy who grew up? He was the, he was the son of the carpenter here. Uh, why should we listen to you? What makes you a prophet? We saw you grow up here. And so if he grew up there, he would have worked. They said Joseph probably worked, would have worked in a little town called Sephora, which was uh, uh, Sephora or Sephora that was uh, not far from Nazareth. It was a day's, uh, a morning's walk over. That he and Jesus, Jesus, if he was raised there, and his other sons, he did have other sons, that if they worked for him, they all walked down, they worked in the city of Sephora, building that town. Um, and so my opinion about Joseph, or I'm sorry, about Jesus' home being in Nazareth, is that they may very well have the site that could be his home, because archaeologically there are telltale traces when you excavate that will tell you, wow, this looks like a home that would have been here, you know, in, uh, you know, from... 20 to 60 A.D., and you look at that, and you go, wow, that's pretty close to the time of Jesus, but then you find, you know, something, a, a, a pottery shard or something uh, that's wedged in the stonework, and you pull that out, and you go, wait a minute, though, this dates back to only 500, or, or this dates back to, there's something, I forget the word for it, but when you uncover a ruin, and you say, well, the ruin here is obviously second century A.D., but then as you dig, you find stuff underneath those ruins yeah. that date back to 2, B, 2 B.C.E., you go, well, there's nobody that's digging up this house and burying, uh, you know, you know, a uh, 20-year-old or 50-year-old or 100-year-old junk underneath the foundations of this house. So this house probably dates back to this, this age, this date. And that's where I think they get that. It's like in Israel, in some of the small towns, they found coins that have the have a seal and a mark of the House of David, the administration of King David, which would have been in the 900s BCE. David, the father of Solomon. And if this is so, and they find three coins, I've heard skeptics go, "Well, that's just three coins." I go, "It could be a half of a yeah, coin." Right? If you've got the seal of the House of David. What does that tell you? And it's underneath old archaeology, and it dates back to the, the 10th century B.C. What do you got? You got something from the 10th century B.C.E. that mentions the House of David. 
And so, uh, um, and starts to wipe out skepticism. Same with Jesus. Uh, so I think the house they found very well could be that they think they found Peter's house, you know, the, the big fisherman in Capernaum, yeah, or Caesarea Philippi. And uh, they date it back because of artifacts found there and the dating of things. And so if this is not Jesus' house, it probably could have been one of his neighbors, you know, who maybe was also a carpenter or a, or a stonemason because there's a shop there as well of, you know, a workshop. So it's very interesting stuff. I didn't get get this out of the article, and maybe you found it somewhere or maybe no, but um, again, they said that they found this under um, the ruins of a of a convent. It was called the Sisters of Nazareth Convent. Is that yeah. con- was that convent put there like like the church that you visited in Old Cairo? Was it put there yeah. because it was believed to have been the site of Jesus's home? Now I don't know specifically about that particular convent, but I do know this: that uh, you remember the Emperor Constantine the Great. Yeah, mm-hmm. he was considered to be the first Christian emperor. He's the one who launched the Council of Nicaea. And all these other councils became uh, convoked after that, where they, in part, it was the council was determining scripture, determining church polity. This was in, he was on the throne around 325 AD is when the Council of Nicaea took place. Now, his mom was, um, why did her name just slip my mind? His mom, uh, uh, um, Constantine's, the emperor's mom, she was, you could almost consider her the first biblical archaeologist, because she led an expedition to the Holy Land to find all these places that were associated with Jesus, associated with Christianity, associated with the personages of the Bible. Now, maybe some of them are a shot in the dark, but uh, uh, there are, uh, um, ah, her name is slipping my mind and it's bothering me, Constantine's mom. If anybody can look that up and put it in the chat room, not Julia it was a name like that, it seems to me. But she was the one who established Helena? Like, the church. Helena. Helena. That's her. Uh, she established the uh, uh, the Church of the Nativity, which you can still go see today, which is supposed to be over the cave where the stable was. But she did this in the late 200s, early 300s AD. You're talking within. Now, that's a long time. Remember, they didn't have modern technology. How much actually changed there? Because there was an emperor, um, it was Hadrian, I believe, that in the first century, late first century, he built a temple to Apollo or to Mithras. I think it was a temple to Mithras on top of the Christian traditional site of the birth of Jesus, the cave of Jesus' birth. And he was anti-Christian, and he mm-hmm. built the Temple of Mithras to detract the Christian followers from visiting this site and worshiping Christ there within a hundred years of the time of Christ. <coughs> and he built it there because that, for a hundred years, had been the site that all of the Jesus followers hailed to as the birthplace of Jesus, this cave, this stable. Right. And uh, so he built that there, and it was Helena that tore it down and built the Church of the Nativity there. She built the church at what she felt was Golgotha, the place of the skull, the the execution of Christ, where the crucifixion took place. And people poo-pooed it at first because, well, that's inside the city walls. Well, that's inside the present-day city walls. Yeah. 
Back then, it would have been outside the walls. She built all these glorious churches, and they've been improved over the years, and some of them have been standing since the 300s, wow. the early 300s. So there you go. One of the things that they talk about in this article is that, um, you know, they've been exploring it piece by piece, but they talk about the standards for archaeology have changed a great deal over the last hundred years. Uh, I don't think you claim to be an archaeologist, but you've certainly dabbled with it and and study it and and understand the concepts. What has changed? What are we doing now uh, as an archaeological discipline that we may may not have been doing a hundred years? And I know that mistakes were made when some of these treasures in Egypt were Egypt were unearthed unearthed because we didn't do things properly. Uh, so what right. what are we doing now that we weren't doing before? Um, I think now what you've got in archaeology. Now, first of all, I'll establish, like you said, I'm not an archaeologist. Uh, it's not that I don't have the knowledge to be one, it's that I don't have the credentials. So I've never gone to school for it. I've been part of archaeological digs in Egypt, but, uh, you know, I pretty much, I can't take credit for anything. All I can do is show pictures of me digging in a hole. <laughs> um, you know, that's me. I'm dirty and dusty and digging in a hole. That's pretty exciting. And, I uh, actually, let me just interrupt <laughs> you for a second here. I, I don't know if this organization still still exists or if you've ever heard of it, but there was an organization called Earthwatch. Do you remember that group? Uh, I, the name sounds familiar. But, they used to they used know. to publish a catalog, and I don't know if it was annually or quarterly or whatever whatever it was. And I st- I subscribed to it, and they would sponsor these ex uh, uh, these uh, these uh, trips around the world, expeditions around the world to do things like go dig in an archaeological right. site in Egypt, or go um, you know to a civil war <laughs> battlefield here in the United States and. And do some work, or, or you know, you could do things like go, yeah. you know, build build a school in, in somewhere that needed one, you know, that kind of. But they and you could you'd pay, but it would be a vacation. But you could take that yeah. that that effort and go do something that either you had a real interest in, or that you felt you know you were contributing in some way. And I always wanted to do that, and there were so many of them that that interest me. And one of them was digging at an archaeological site because, despite the fact, like you just described it, you're in a hole. There's a lot of dirt, and you got a little trouble. Yeah. Maybe a little brush that you're brushing things off with. Um, that doesn't seem exciting, but something about it to me is exciting. You know, it's, it's like going to a dude ranch, only it's different. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, I've been in on things, and you can go do that even now. I could take my family and go be on an archaeological dig. Uh, when I went over and I stayed for, every time I've been to Egypt, I've never been less than four weeks staying. And uh, I was for a month. Um, the last time I went with uh, John and Maria on their site at Gebel El Silsila. And uh, if you guys want to see something, just go to friendsofsilsila.com. Here, I'll just put a, uh, I'll put a, a quick thing into the chat room. Now, this hasn't been updated for a year or so, but uh, there you go. Go see that link. Uh, but um, I was in on archaeological digs with them, but they supervised. They said, here, here's a trowel dig here. Right. And uh, I would dig, and if I found anything, if I sifted through anything, uh, we were on the, the top of a hill on the west bank, or the east bank of the Nile at their site, and uncovering the stables of King Herod. And um, uh, and it was very cool, uh, Roman times. Yeah. They found coins there. They found all kinds. They found a temple there, and uh, all of this stuff. And I was in on that, and I was there. Uh, and that's very cool. It's very exciting to be part of that. But... Um, um, I think you had a question for me. I, I, I don't know. I may have, but I've got, a, I've got a new one that's probably bigger and better. Um, 
One of the things that always fascinates me is when we, we have, like, this particular article talks about this home being underneath this uh, convent. And often we'll have these archaeological finds that are under something else. In some yeah. cases, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a building underneath another building. In some cases, it's a whole city under another city. How does that happen, Scott? Yeah. How does that happen? Uh, well, you, you will have things like where there's an old city that was there and silt and dirt and dust blowing in, especially in Egypt, can cover some things up. In the Holy Land, it can cover some things up. But what they did was they would keep building on top of things. And they found that after centuries, you know, you had strata and different layers of things that were taking place. Uh, and so you'd have whole cities. Very, it's like right now, the city of Avaris in Egypt. Um, Avaris is an entire city. Now, it's ruins. It's not like you're going to find big buildings or anything. It's mostly yeah. ruins and foundations. Right. You find beneath the old city of Pyramses. Now, the Bible says that in the book of Exodus, it says, the children of Israel, while they were slaves in Egypt, built the treasure cities of Pyramses, Python and Ramses, or Pyramses. And you can see the site of that. So you can zoom in on it uh, on uh, Google Earth. You can zoom in on the ruins. Uh, but Pyramses, this is why scholars started believing a long time ago that Ramses II was the pharaoh of the Exodus, like you see in all the movies. Well, he wasn't, because he was almost 200 years too late from other things that happened in the Exodus story that you can pinpoint. Here's a great example. After Moses, the, the plagues, and Moses leads the people out, they spend 40 years in the wilderness of Sinai. They go into the land, and Joshua becomes the leader. The first thing they do is they take down the city of Jericho. Now, Jericho um, it still exists. The city of Jericho is there today. But there's the old Tel, Tel Sultan, which uh, is where Jericho is. It's this old dusty hilltop uh, set of ruins. And they've dated that to around 14... 5 BCE. Now that sounds really specific, but you know they date it to 1405 BC. Ramses the Great lived in 1250 BC, another 150 years later. But he, uh, but what they have found is that once Jericho was destroyed in 1405, it was uninhabited for another 850 years before the city sprung up again, and they started building on top of the old ruins and things like that. And this is where, like, Kathleen Kenyon, very well-known archaeologist in the early 20th century, was one of the people that was uncovering the city of Jericho. And so if Ramses the Great was the pharaoh of the Exodus, how did Joshua destroy the city of Jericho 40 years after the Exodus, 150 years before the birth of Ramses II? That's the stuff you can look at. And yeah. that's in light. Uh, you know, that's what you can look at, that kind of thing. Um, I want to go to a couple uh, chat room questions before we get too uh, late here. Um, let's see. Uh, one of our chatters asked about the books of the Apocrypha. Have you read any of those? Yes. What are your thoughts on them? Um, the Apocrypha is kind of like um, the New Testament on crack. Um, there are some pretty amazing books in there, like the Book of Enoch, which gets a lot of press. Yeah. 
because you you know you find out about the Anunnaki, the Nephilim, all of that stuff. There, that's one of the apocryphal books. Now, remember, all the apocryphal books were was when they had these councils, starting with the Council of Nicaea and many others, where one of the tasks on their plate was to determine which books of the New Testament or which books of the Bible were should be included in the official canon of the Bible. Meaning these are the God-breathed books, these are the man-made books. Now, how they determined that, it was all the bishops and all of this back then in the 300s. And they determined this. And Constantine, the emperor, had declared himself, made himself the first pope of the Catholic Church. And he was also the emperor of Rome. And he had two things he was trying to get across. He said, number one, he says, is there's one religion, which means equates to one empire. And there's one God, which equates to one emperor. Those two things are all I want established. And I don't care what you determine about these books, your, your conclusions better damn well be unanimous. And so where there was not unanimity, they booted a book out of the Bible. Uh, or where there was not unanimity, but a lot of people believed that there was something to, like the book of uh, Enoch, they took those books and set them aside and put them in the apocryphal section of the Bible. You'll find that in your Catholic Bibles usually have the apocryphal books. And, and so that's what they are. But, I mean, you had these crazy things going on in the book of Enoch. Enoch is where you've got the 200 prefects from heaven came down and set foot on Mount Armon, which is Mount Hermon, up uh, on the Lebanese-Israeli border now. And uh, um, this mountain is like a two-peaked mountain. It's, not a, it's a big ski resort in Israel, the north of Israel. And, uh, um, but this is where they set foot down and determined to go in amongst human women and take them for wives and have children with them. And this is the beginning of the Nephilim story. And so what you have in the book of Genesis, that four verses that talks about the Nephilim mm-hmm. coming down, they came down, intermingled with the daughters of men, had children by them. Uh, they loved whomever they chose. Uh, that story, the broader story, is in the book of Enoch. And there's a lot more information to it. These 200 prefects, they brought the, the knowledge of uh, astronomy, of, of uh, agriculture, of weapon making, of making tools out of iron. And they, they brought all these things to mankind at the time. And what's interesting is that, and they were the ones that fathered the Nephilim. They were known as the Watchers, the Bene Ha Elohim, the sons of Elohim, or the Watchers as we know them. And they came down and impregnated women. And the interesting thing when you study this is the way the text reads, they took these women not by force or raping them, it was because they loved them and wanted to be one of them and with them. And they took these women to wife, according to the Book of Enoch. And uh, so there's a lot of interesting stuff. There's also in the Book of Enoch, and I've talked about this before, I know, because I put it in the, in the last, one of the last chapters of my book from, God, 10 years ago now when I wrote it. But uh, um, that the Book of Enoch says that all the spirits of the Nephilim who died in the great flood of Noah, that all these spirits became the evil spirits that will plague man throughout time. And so, in essence, 
when you watch, say you watch a, a ghost hunting show on TV, depending on the veracity you give the people who are doing it, the credibility, they run into demons. Or we know of people who do ghost hunting, paranormal investigations, that they've encountered what they would consider evil presences or demons. Um, according to the Book of Enoch, the demons are the cast of spirits that are left over after being destroyed in the flood, and they became the demonic that still plague mankind throughout of all, all time. Now, I'm not saying I agree with that or believe that necessarily. That's what the Book of Enoch tells you, is that who the demons are, the demonic cast. So it's very interesting. But, uh, yeah, those apocryphal books, kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, there are some books that are not in the Apocrypha, but were discovered, like in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and uh, the, um, not Amarna, uh, the uh, uh, um, Gandhara, I believe, uh, where they uncovered in the 40s, just like the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, a bunch of scrolls and texts, bound leather books that date back into the 200s and the 300s. Wow. And they found these books, and this is where you have not just the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament. you got 66 to 70 other Gospels written by different characters. There was a Gospel of, of Barnabas. There was a Gospel of, of Judas Iscariot. Uh, there were uh, the Gospels of Philip, of Mattathias, of the Gospel of Mary. Uh, all these books were written and are out there. The Gospel of Thomas, I think. And there's some very interesting information in all So... Another question that uh, scrolled through the chat room was a question of Lilith. Is Lilith referenced in any of these ancient texts? No, it's they're, they're not. She's not referenced per se in. She's not referenced at all in the Bible um, that we have is the Bible. She's not referenced in the apocryphal books, but where she is referenced is in some of the old rabbinic writings in Jewish tradition that she was the first wife of Adam. And uh, um, a little too hoity-toity, and so, uh, you know, Adam asked for somebody else. And uh, But she became almost, she, you see her as a demonic character in some, you see her as this great spirit being in others. What I find very interesting about the stories of Lilith are like um, <clears throat> when you start thinking of gods and goddesses, uh, what was the big thing that Israel, all through the Old Testament, Israel was always, and God was always pissed off at Israel and the Jewish people because they were falling into the worship of Baal and Asherah. Baal being the god, mm-hmm. Asherah being the, the goddess. Now, they go back, way back into ancient Egyptian times. They predate uh, Judaism by thousands of years. And what's interesting <clears throat> is that while we think that the, the Bible teaches monotheism and that it's only God, God the Father, the patriarchal God, um, you find many references that are vague that talk about the goddess without using that term. There was the, and I've, I've talked about this before in my own show, so some of my listeners who were in here might recognize this, but you see the term Shekinah, the Shekinah glory of God. There was a place where Moses built the tabernacle of the covenant while they were all wandering in the wilderness. And this was the tent version of what would eventually become the temple in Jerusalem. It had the holy place, the holy of holies, the big tent around it. And um, uh, it said on the day that he dedicated 
the Ark of the Covenant, and they carried the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies in the tented tabernacle, that God's Shekinah glory came out of the sky like a cloud and settled on the Ark. And there the presence of the Lord dwelt. Now, what's interesting, for these different times you see the Shekinah mentioned in the Old Testament, is that Shekinah is, in Hebrew, a strictly female term. Uh, So it's talking about, in essence, you boil off all the dross. The female presence of God descended on the ark in the the, uh, tabernacle of the covenant. And there's a couple of different places where Shekinah is brought up. And uh, so Shekinah is the female term. Is that a reference, a watered-down reference to Lilith or the goddess? Uh, of Judaism. Um, I know the Elohim is certainly a reference to the multiplicity of gods. Uh, there was I saw some really good commentary written on this, some research done on it, an analysis. When the Bible in the Ten Commandments says, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, in the language, in the linguistics, it's not metaphoric. It's not saying, you shall not Make this hat be a god, an idol for you. You only have me. Or, you know, you won't make up these gods. It's saying, basically saying out of all the other gods that exist, Israel will have no other god than me. And uh, so it's acknowledging the presence to the left and the right of other gods. And the term Elohim, which is one of the names for God, and I brought this up in my book on on the Nephilim, Nephilim is the same thing, and you and I have talked about this before. Nephilim, in the Hebrew, the him at the end, the suffix, is a plurality that's tacked onto a word. Nephal, and then him is the plurality. So instead of the ones who fall or someone who falls or falls, Nephilim is those who have fallen, those who have fallen or fell. Elohim is the same way. El is the name for God, which came from the Anunnaki's Elil and Enlil. El became, in the Canaanite culture, became the name for God, the word for God. Elohim is one of the God, names for God in the Old Testament. He has many names in the Old Testament, but the one that's used the most, almost 3,000 times in the Old Testament, is Elohim. And when you define the word Elohim, means El, God, Oh, Him, God of many gods. And then you've got the Beneha. Elohim, the those who are of the God of many gods. That's the Elohim, the, the watchers who came down. And so the name for God is a is a plurality by definition. You've got that scene in Psalm 82 <clears throat> where it shows both both uh, Elohim being used as plural and singular. It says, "And God stood in the great council, the divine council, and He said to them, You are all gods.'" the bright shining princes of heaven. But then he goes to render judgment on them. In the Hebrew, it says, and Elohim stood in the midst of the Elohim. And he, singular, said to them, plural, you are all Elohim, but this is where you have fallen. And this is why. And so uh, Elohim is like the word deer in the English language. Mm -hmm. I see one deer in my front yard. I see a herd of deer in my backyard. So um, it's kind of like that. 
So these words, I don't know where we were going with that, but that's where I ended up. I'm not sure, but I also am not sure why I always think I should have three or four topics for us to talk about on a given night. Because when I, I've learned over and over that we don't need three or four. One is plenty because um, there's so much to talk about when we get into these things. And, and Scotty, we've yeah. basically come to the end of our time. And, How about that? You know, it just happens. And I love having you on the program because it's always so fascinating. Um and it makes makes my job really really easy when I have someone as knowledgeable <laughs> as you here to help out. Uh, so thanks, well, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> thanks for that. Um, I hope you're hope you're uh, regardless of what the origin is. We didn't get to talk about really the origin of Christmas as it as it is today. But um, I hope whatever it's that pagan. is, I hope so we'll give you a quick answer. It's pagan. Yeah, yeah, it Jesus is. Jesus was born probably in April. Yep. Because when they had the sheep that close into Bethlehem, mm-hmm. it was only in one time of the year, Passover, That's which right. takes place in April. That's right. So but wh- whatever the origin is, I hope you and your family have a great Christmas. And um, let's do this again really soon. Let's get you back on here. Absolutely. Outstanding. Thanks, so, Jimmy. Before I let you go, let everybody know where they can go to follow your work. Uh, you can just go to my website, Scott Allen Roberts. Dot com, and Alan is A L A, and I'll just put it in the in the damn chat room. Yeah, throw it in there. So there you go. ScottAllenRoberts awesome. dot com. You can see all links to all my books, my radio show, my stuff, my junk. It's all there. All right. Thanks. Thanks so much, Scotty. Thanks, Jimmy. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.